Hello, I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode two of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying an iced green tea, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the story of the murders at White House Farms. This story examines the August 7th, 1985 murders of the Bamber family, Ralph, June, Sheila, Daniel, and Nicholas at the White House Farm in Essex, a county in southeast England. First, I'm going to get into the early life of Ralph and June Bamber. Ralph was born on June 8th of 1924, and he was known to his friends as Neville, so that's how I'm going to be referring to him throughout this episode. He progressed through many different career paths during his life, including working as an RAF pilot and also as a local magistrate at Witham Magistrates Court. He's been described as a strong, very manly type of man, and especially as a very kind person. He was very well known and very well respected in his village. He married his wife June in 1949 in a Christian church. They were both very religious, especially his wife June. She was later known for being almost an extremist when it came to religion. June was born on June 3rd of 1924. She was described as a very shy, quiet, reserved person. And again, she was extremely religious. The two of them moved into the Georgian White House farm, located on Pages Lane in Tolchant Darcy. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, This was a small village with a population of about 1,000 people, so it was very, very quiet and almost completely surrounded by field and forest for just miles around. White House Farm was passed to June by her father, and it consisted of about 300 acres of farmland, so definitely a very big area. The young couple began to plan on having a child after they moved into the farm, but after a while of trying and not being successful, June decided to visit a doctor to see if there was anything possibly wrong. She was unfortunately told that she could not have biological children, so they decided to instead start looking into adoption. And the Bamber family was notably financially secure. They had the farmhouse and 300 acres of land, additional property in London, as well as a caravan site, which is essentially just a campsite which made them an ideal family to take in adoptive children, and they were able to provide those children with a good home and a good education. The Bamber family adopted two children. The first was Sheila. She was adopted by the Bamber family at a really young age, and she was born on July 18th of 1857. She was the daughter of an 18-year-old named Phyllis, whose father was a senior chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury. She was given up for adoption at about two weeks old, and she was left at the Church of England Children's Society, and it's assumed that this is because of her father's position in the church, as well as the fact that Sheila had been conceived outside of wedlock. Sheila was two months old when she was adopted, and those papers were signed on October 1st of 1957. They then adopted Jeremy, um, who was also adopted at a young age. He was born on January 13th of 1961 to a student midwife who had had an affair with a married army sergeant. The student and the sergeant were actually later married, and they did have another child, but this all happened after Jeremy was placed into care, so he didn't get to grow up with his biological family, and he was six months old when his adoption papers were signed. 
Just to touch on June's mental health a little bit before we get into the rest of the episode, she suffered from chronic depression, and this started really around the time that Sheila was adopted. She was admitted to a psychiatric hospital two separate times, once in 1955, which was just before the adoption, and then she was readmitted to psychiatric treatment in 1958 for another inpatient stay. And it was during this hospital stay in 1958 that she received multiple rounds of electroshock therapy. Electroshock therapy is a treatment for depression, and it's very much a complete last resort treatment, but it consists of applying a voltage to electrodes placed on a patient's head. And psychiatrists today admit that this only gives temporary results, and no convincing explanation of why it works has ever been able to be presented. So it is likely that the electroshock therapy was really only doing damage to June's uh, mental health struggles. Many psychiatrists have reported that she suffered from paranoid delusions, and this is largely because of her religion that um, they were thinking that these originated from, because she saw the world as increasingly good and evil, and she even started to believe that her kids were evil because they weren't super religious like she was. And this made the relationship between June and her kids very strained, and unfortunately, this wasn't ever really able to be recovered as they moved through life. Sheila began a private school education at Malden Court Preparatory School, which was located in Malden. And after that, she went to the Moira House Girls School, which is in Eastbourne. After these schools, she decided to continue her education by going to Secretarial College, which was located in London. While she was there, she discovered in 1974 that she had become pregnant by a man named Colin Caffel, and the Bambers were incredibly mad, mostly June, and she was only 17 at the time of this conception. The Bambers arranged an abortion for Sheila, and after this, June began to call Sheila the devil's child. But Sheila continued with her schooling and then decided to start training as a hairdresser. She also briefly started working as a model, signed with the Lucy Clayton Agency, and she was even offered an opportunity to travel to Tokyo with a two-month modeling contract, so she was becoming pretty successful in that industry. Sheila returned to London after this contract ended and once again became pregnant by Colin, after which he proposed to her, and at this time she was 20 years old. The two of them got married in May of 1977 at the Chelmsford Registry Office, and unfortunately she actually lost this baby six months into the pregnancy, and her relationship with her parents, as I said, had been very strained up until this point. When they heard the sad news, they became a lot more supportive of her, and they felt really bad. They wanted to help her recover from the loss. So Neville and June offered to buy the couple a flat in Hampstead as a place for Sheila to recover. So they moved into this flat, trying for children once again, and once again had another miscarriage. Finally, the couple gave birth to twin boys on June 22nd of 1979, and they named them Daniel and Nicholas. About five months after Sheila gave birth to the twins, she actually found out that Colin had been having an affair, pretty much for the entire duration of the marriage, and this had a major negative impact on Sheila's mental health. 
Around this time, she was reported punching through a window, and it was decided by doctors that she should receive hospital treatment, so this would be inpatient care for uh, psychiatric struggles. Sheila and Colin's divorce was finalized in May of 1982, and Sheila decided to move forward with her children. Neville purchased another flat in Maeda Vale for the family, and Colin did remain a part of their lives. He was a very supportive father, and he would have them over several nights a week to his home, which was located in Kilburn. Sheila's mental health was actually improving around this time, and she decided that she was going to try and find her biological mother. She was able to trace her to Canada, and she met her in 1982. There's not a lot of information on this interaction, but the relationship did not form as Sheila had hoped from this interaction, and this caused her mental health to start to decline once again, which is understandable. Sheila began to party and take drugs, and her modeling career quickly suffered and ultimately ended because of these behaviors. She began living off of welfare and taking low-paying jobs such as waitressing, making it really, really hard to support her two children, and her mental health just continued to get worse, likely in part to the stress of being on welfare and not making a lot of money and having to try and support two children, I can't even imagine. But she started doing things like banging her head against the wall for seemingly no reason. And in 1983, Sheila began to see Dr. Hugh Ferguson, actually the same doctor who treated her mother, who diagnosed her as paranoid and psychotic. This led to her hospitalization, where she was clinically diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia. Paranoid schizophrenia is a subtype of schizophrenia. And it differs from just schizophrenia because the paranoid subtype typically has auditory hallucinations or prominent delusional thoughts that tend to revolve around one common theme. The hallucinations for paranoid schizophrenics can also be of smell, taste, or touch sensations. And paranoid schizophrenia is diagnosed on a spectrum, so there isn't a lot of information about where Sheila fell on that spectrum specifically, but it absolutely affected her ability to be high-functioning, and she was treated inpatient for it, so I'm assuming that she was pretty severe on that spectrum. In the hospital, she displayed beliefs that she was the devil, and her children were the devil's children. And I wanted to note that this is actually really similar to her mother's delusions and her mother's behaviors, because her mother, um, if you remember, used to call Sheila the devil's child. But she also started to say some really scary things, such as being capable of murder, and that she had the ability to tell her children to kill for her. So she was prescribed trifluoperazine, which is an antipsychotic used to treat anxiety and schizophrenia. And she was prescribed this before being released to outpatient care, and she continued to take it once she was released from the hospital. She was doing okay for a while, but then she actually had to go back to the hospital one more time. And after this, she returned to White House Farm, but she was claiming this time that people were out to kill her, and she was just becoming increasingly paranoid um, as time was going on. So this time, when she was hospitalized, her children were removed from her care, and they started to live with their father instead, which was really upsetting for her. Getting into the life of Jeremy, he also attended Malden Court Preparatory School, after which he went to Grisham School in Norfolk, 
And at this school, he wasn't really well-liked, and he didn't really have a lot of friends. He reportedly had some behavioral issues of his own. Apparently, he was a big prankster, especially at the family home. Uh, It's been reported that because June was terrified of rats, he would put baby rats in his pocket and force her to stick her hand in his pocket, not letting her take it out, which was really upsetting, obviously, for June, and it definitely isolated him a little bit from his parents. So he was sent to the Grisham School, which is a boarding school, and his school experience there was reportedly really traumatic. He was bullied, and uh, this is not confirmed, but he has said that he experienced some sexual assault there. And apparently some of the bullying at this school had to do with him being adopted. So he started to feel really lonely, and especially really abandoned. Um, He was feeling really abandoned for the fact that he was adopted in the first place and also being abandoned by his parents being away and being at boarding school. And apparently he was feeling lots of anger at this time. Jeremy left Grisham School with no qualifications, but he did attend a local sixth form where he managed to pass seven O levels in 1978. Neville paid for Jeremy to go to Australia where he did some exploring and then he also went to New Zealand afterwards. And reports suggest that he started to engage in some small petty crimes during this time, such as theft. He returned home in 1982, where he was earning about 170 euros a week to work on the family farm. And he moved into the Bamber Cottage in Goldhanger. And his parents also bought him a car and provided him 8% of shares in the campsite. So he was really kind of set up with his family position at the time. So now that we've gone through the lives of the different family members, I'm going to start talking about the days leading up to the murders. Starting with August 4th of 1985, which was three days before, Sheila picked up her children from Colin's house, planning to have them stay at the farm for a while before they went on vacation with Colin. And Colin later said that the boys just did not want to see their grandparents at all, saying that their grandmother would force them to kneel and pray and that they really didn't like how religion was being forced on them in the home. He promised the kids to speak to their grandmother about this, and they reluctantly agreed to go, arriving that day. The housekeeper and two farm workers said that the boys seemed happy on that day. However, investigators did later find a carving into a cabinet door in the boys' room that read, I hate this place. But there isn't a way to determine when the carving was made, so we can't say if it was on this particular visit or on a previous visit. Moving on to Tuesday, August 6th, Jeremy visited the farm this night and they all sat down to a family dinner. Jeremy told the police that that night their parents had suggested that Sheila place the boys in a daytime foster care. This would have been with a local family. And he claimed that Sheila seemed pretty unfazed by this, but Sheila's doctors told police a completely different story. Her doctors hypothesized that because her children had been taken away from her before, she would have actually had a very strong emotional reaction to this suggestion, which makes it seem like a very weird thing for Jeremy to say that she remained calm. A worker from the farm reported to the police that Jeremy left at around 9.30 p.m., And around the same time, the farm secretary, whose name was Barbara, reports placing a call to Neville, and she says that she got the impression that her call had interrupted an argument that was possibly happening at the house, and when Neville hung up, he hung up the phone with kind of an irritated sense about him, which was very uncommon for his character. 
and June received a call from her sister, Pamela Boutflower, at around 10 p.m. that night. She recalled that June was acting normally, but she did note that Sheila was oddly really quiet. Police report that there were three working phones at the White House farm on the night of the murders, all of which were connected to the same landline. There was a phone in the kitchen, another phone in the another another phone in the kitchen that was cordless, and then the last phone was located in the master bedroom. So early morning on August 7th, Jeremy called the local police, making them aware that there was an incident happening at, happening at White House Farm. And oddly enough, he actually didn't call the emergency number, he just called the local department number. But he said that he had gotten a call from his father, who said that Sheila had gone crazy and that she had a gun. He said that the line had gone dead after that, as if someone had just pressed the receiver button. Police arrived on the scene almost immediately, but no one actually entered the home until 7.54 a.m., which was a couple of hours later, and they used a sledgehammer to enter through the back door, finding just an absolutely horrific scene. Neville's body was slumped over an overturned chair in the kitchen, which suggested to police that there had been a struggle. He was dressed in his pajamas, and he had been shot eight times. Ballistics suggest that the first six shots had been fired from only inches away, and they covered his head and face area, and the final two shots were fired from about two feet away. Crime scene investigation um, determined that from examining empty shells, he had been shot four times in the bedroom and then managed to get down to the kitchen and that the final four shots were fired there. We can assume that he was probably trying to reach one of the phones in the kitchen. June was found in a nightdress lying on the floor next to her bed. Crime scene analysis showed that she had been sitting up when she was shot seven times, one of them between the eyes from about a foot away, and then the rest of the gunshots were to the right side of her head, which was her right temple, and that was determined to be the fatal shot. Also her lower neck, her forearm, and her knee. The two little boys, Daniel and Nicholas, were found in their beds, believed to have been shot while they were sleeping, they would have been six years old at this time. Daniel was shot five times in the back of the head, four of which were from under a foot away, and Nicholas had been shot three times, also at close range. Sheila's body was the last one to be found. She was on the floor of the master bedroom in her nightdress with two bullet wounds under her chin and one to the throat. The murder weapon, which was a rifle, was found lying on top of Sheila, pointing towards her neck. The pathologist on this case was named Dr. Peter Venezis, and he said that the lower injury had occurred from three inches and that the other one was a contact injury. So this suggested that she hadn't died immediately and that she could have walked around with the first gunshot wound, but the amount of blood on her clothes showed that she hadn't been moving after the injury occurred. Based on these findings, an initial theory was coming up pretty quickly that Sheila had carried out the murders, and that this case was a pretty open-and-shut murder-suicide. And it was said that Jeremy had a major, major physical reaction, crying, uh, falling to the ground, when the police exited the home and told him what they had seen inside. At Jeremy's suggestion, the police conducted a blood and urine test on Sheila after she died, and they found that she had taken the antipsychotic drug Haloperidol, which is a conventional antipsychotic used to treat a variety of psychotic disorders, and that she also had um, some cannabis several days before the murders. 
A firearms officer noted how Sheila's fingernails and hands were clean, finding no blood, dirt, and most importantly, no gunpowder residue. Based on the number of shots that were fired during the murders, the shooter would have had to reload the gun at least two times, which should have resulted in some amount of gunpowder being left on her hands, but nothing was found. This wasn't really considered to be a major point at the time that it was discovered, just because the case was still seemingly pretty open and closed, and it made sense that because of Sheila's history, she might have acted out in this way. A complete media frenzy followed a couple days after the murders, with almost everyone in the area certain that this was a murder-suicide scenario. Actually, the deputy on the case was so confident that Sheila was the perpetrator that he completely dismissed claims coming in from Jeremy's cousins that he had staged the scene. Because everyone was so sure that Sheila had committed the crimes, the crime scene was not well-preserved at all for further investigations. Within days, the police had burned all of the blood-stained rugs and bedding, and this was supposedly to spare Jeremy the task of disposing of them, but I'm not really sure if this is common practice. It doesn't really sound like it. Jeremy even received the keys to the farm back within three days of the murders. The crime scene officer had also moved the rifle without wearing gloves, and so his fingerprints kind of negated any chance of finding accurate evidence from the weapon itself. And police dismissed questions of a silencer being used in the murders until August 19th, when a silencer was actually discovered in the back of a cabinet by one of Jeremy's cousins. The silencer had paint and what appeared to be blood on it, so this cousin called the police, but it actually took the police three whole days to come and collect the silencer, and they maintained the theory that Sheila had killed everyone, even though that was being called into serious question, especially by this finding, and the silencer point is really important. It's going to come up when we talk about the trial later on. Jeremy didn't come under suspicion for these crimes until after the funerals were held. He was reported to be falling to the floor in grief at his parents' services, but then at the wakes, he was reported to have been smiling and joking and kind of looking almost a little bit carefree. Following the funerals, Jeremy traveled to Amsterdam, where he bought large amounts of cannabis, he started selling the family possessions, and he even tried to sell 20 nude photos of Sheila from when she was modeling to the Sun newspaper for 20,000 euros. So obviously, he's starting to look a little suspicious, and the police started to realize that Jeremy may have actually had something to do with these murders, and they initially um, started to form a theory about his motives and that the reasons were going to be financial. The police launched an investigation into Jeremy, and one of the first things they noticed was that the phones in the house had been moved, the master bedroom phone was found downstairs, and the phone from the kitchen was hidden under some newspapers in the living room. They also found that Jeremy's right forefinger print was on the rear end of the rifle, which he claimed that he had used the gun to shoot rabbits, and this had initially seemed really plausible because no one had any reason not to believe him in the beginning and it also was reportedly his gun. So in the beginning, it did make sense that his own fingerprints would be on it. Investigators noted that the silencer wasn't found on the gun when the bodies were discovered, but there was blood on it, and this included Sheila's blood. So this brought up the question that if Sheila had used the silencer for the murders and for her own suicide, 
how did it end up in the cabinet apart from the gun? Which is a very valid question. That doesn't make any sense to me. So a month after the murder, on September 7th, this was when the most significant break in the case came when Jeremy's girlfriend, Julie Mugford, approached the police with a change in her statement, and she said that Jeremy had been planning to kill his family. According to her, between July and October of 1984, he had spoken about wanting to get rid of his family. He said that his parents were ruining his life, and he said that Sheila had nothing to live for. He thought his parents were very controlling, and that was really upsetting him. And he also felt like Sheila was a bad mother, which kind of provides a good picture of what his motive was for these crimes. The two had been together since 1983, and Julie said that she just noticed a pattern of dishonesty in Jeremy. She also reported that she had helped Jeremy steal a thousand euros from the family caravan site in 1985 and that the two of them had staged a break-in to make it seem like strangers had come and stolen the money. She said that she got a call from Jeremy on August 7th between 3 o'clock and 3.30 in the morning, where he told her that something was wrong at White House Farm. And then she said that she had changed her mind and been honest with police because Jeremy had changed, and their relationship since had become really argumentative. And she said that she thought Jeremy was dangerous and a psychopath, and that he had once tried to smother her with a pillow when she was asleep. She had started to believe that Jeremy was capable of violence. Um, She said that he had spoken of sedating June and Neville with sleeping pills, of shooting them, and of setting the house on fire. And he always said that Sheila would make a good scapegoat because of her previous mental health issues. Apparently, on the day of the murders, Jeremy called his girlfriend and said it was now or never, and this was supposedly after Jeremy had left the dinner. And then he then told her that he hadn't actually done it, but that he had paid a family plumber to do it for 2,000 euros. Overall, this statement obviously led to Jeremy's arrest and being charged with all five murders. And it is thought that, other than being angry with his parents, Jeremy did this for monetary reasons, Apparently, in June and Neville's will, the family's assets were supposed to be split between Sheila and Jeremy, but if Sheila were to pass away as well, Jeremy would receive all the family money and all the family property. Jeremy's trial began on October 3rd of 1986 and lasted a total of 18 days. The prosecution had a few major arguments that kind of carried their case, and they put forward the theory that Jeremy killed his mother first, then his father, and then Sheila last, arranging the scene after Sheila was dead. A major point for the prosecution was the silencer, was the fact that Jeremy had realized that Sheila wouldn't have been able to reach the trigger with the silencer on the gun, and so he removed it and hid it. Because the silencer made the gun longer, Sheila wouldn't have been able to shoot herself if the silencer was on the gun. So if Jeremy had realized this, yes, he would have taken the silencer off, and that would be why it was found in the cabinet and not on the gun. They said that after this, he removed the kitchen phone from the hook and then exited the house through the kitchen window, taking his mother's bike and using it to get back to his own home. He then called Julie Mugford at 3 a.m. and the police at 3.26 in the morning. He actually tried to create a delay, they think, by driving really slowly to the farmhouse, 
And he told the police that Sheila had a lot of knowledge about guns so that the police would hesitate to enter the house if there was anyone still alive and it could be a possibly dangerous situation. The defense's case was pretty weak. They maintained that the witnesses who provided detailed statements were either mistaken or had been misinterpreted. They said that nobody had seen Jeremy on his mother's bike. They said that he had no defensive wounds and no bloodstains on his clothes. But that doesn't really hold up because he had gone home, so it would have been really easy for him to change. They continued to just blame Sheila throughout the trial, citing her mental health issues. And they brought up the fact that she had previously called her children the children of the devil and that she was capable of killing, as she had said in the past. The jury deliberated for about nine and a half hours, finding Jeremy guilty by a 10 to 2 majority vote, and he was given five life sentences, so absolutely no possibility of parole. Now, this is a British case, but today this case has become increasingly famous in the U.S. and around the world with the release of a TV series based off of the case. This series is called The Murders at White House Farm. And it's a British show that originally aired on ITV in 2020 and is now available for streaming on HBO Max. While this case seems to be solved beyond a doubt, Jeremy has maintained his innocence since his conviction, and there are still a small group of people who believe him and think that Sheila was the one who killed the family. Personally, I don't really have any doubt regarding his guilt, and the only thing that I can say is that this case is just an example of a senseless tragedy, and really it's just sad. Each person's life was taken unfairly from them, and the fact that it was at the hands of someone that they thought they loved and trusted is even more shocking. Today, this home is actually still standing, and it is believed that Jeremy's cousin, Anne Eaton, currently lives there. Eaton was one of the cousins who was instrumental in alerting police to Jeremy's odd behavior after the murders. However, after the trial, she has remained strictly out of the public eye. And with that, this story is coming to a close. So I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Crime Bistro podcast. And if you want to learn more about this case, visit the show notes on crimebistro.com, where I will have listed my sources as well as some additional media. Be sure to tune in next week for another true crime tale, and until next time.